Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This is KSL's Religion Today, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner, on KSL News Radio. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. I had a fascinating discussion, or at least it was for me, with someone on Facebook this past week. There was a Facebook group that is called Thoughtful Latter-day Saints or something close to that. And we were having a discussion, a few of us were, about how literal and how figurative was the book of Genesis. Another way to look at that would be how factual are the claims and comments in the book of Genesis. There are a number of different points of view on that. And if you had asked me that question 33 years ago when I was first involved in radio shows and debating critics and others much more often than I am today, I would have come to a position and just held it strongly. Today, I don't do that so much (laughs) because there is a lot of evidence that will lead you down one path or the other. And I've come to believe just as Joseph Smith taught through a fascinating episode in church history, that just because someone has beliefs that you think are untrue in the church or that are a little bit off kilter doesn't mean that they're not a good person and vice versa, hopefully, for for all of us. The story that I'm talking about is a man named Pelatiah Brown. In Kirtland, just a few years after the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had moved there from New York, there was a man, an older gentleman named Pelatiah Brown, who taught Sunday school. And he came up with some ideas about the book of Revelation that almost everyone in the Sunday school class thought were just wrong and crazy. They were kind of nuts. And so Pelatiah Brown was asked not to teach those ideas anymore, but he did anyway. (laughs) And ultimately, people became unhappy enough that they brought him up on charges before the high council in Kirtland. And he was censured, and he appealed to Joseph Smith, who reversed the high council and said, in effect, a person isn't a bad person just because they err in doctrine. 
And then he went on to explain that he thought it was important that we all have the freedom to believe on main issues, except for perhaps those fundamental bedrock issues, whatever we would like, and that those who are true and faithful will eventually get to to the truth. I've always found that a comforting story, because you can never find two people who believe exactly the same thing on anything, let alone religious points of doctrine and history. And so, as I was getting back to this Facebook discussion, talking about how literal or figurative the book of Genesis was, I was the one who was originally on on the defensive there. People would ask questions and... I would kind of respond and, and say, it's hard to know how much of Genesis is, is literal, and there's a lot of it that we have good evidence for, things that we didn't even know before. For example, scholars used to say they thought that Abraham was not a real person. Why? Because in the story of Abraham, it talks about his camels and the idea was that during the time period in history where Abraham is supposed to have lived, according to the book of Genesis, camels were not yet domesticated. Well, strike one up for the scholars and strike one up against the Bible. That's the way it used to be, but now things are reversed because we now have scholarly archaeology that demonstrates that indeed camels were around and domesticated. And this is not just tentative evidence. There have been some figurines that clearly date back before the time of Abraham that show domesticated camels with ropes around their necks and packs on their back showing they were domesticated and carrying things. So ideas about the historicity of certain parts of the Bible will ebb and flow. Another fascinating part of the whole story is what about the Garden of Eden? Is this a genuine story or is this an allegory for how good and evil came about? Latter-day Saints generally take the position that there was a real Garden of Eden and and that, uh, as a matter of fact, many would say it was in Jackson County, Missouri, or somewhere close to that. Although if you track down all of those fascinating early stories about where the Garden of Eden was, you'll find that Joseph Smith said nothing on the topic. And those early brethren who did mention it, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and others, didn't necessarily say that this was revelation. These were their own comments, their own personal ideas. And so we don't have any bedrock doctrine there. One may say the Garden of Eden will be there. One may say that it that it was somewhere else in, in the Middle East. It's something that Latter-day Saints don't feel stuck to, although one way or another, although people are passionate about the subject. The church is so passionate about one bedrock theme of Christianity, which is the second coming of Christ, and it's pretty hard to believe, be a believing Christian and not believe that Jesus will come back again, that the church has uh, purchased quite a bit of land 
in and around Adamondiam and Jackson County, Missouri, presumably to have it prepared and beautiful for the time when the second coming shall take place. There are also some traditions within the LDS faith about a temple to eventually be built in Jackson County. And if you look at the designs that were prepared by Joseph Smith and the architects of the day, you'll find it was quite a different temple than the kind of temples that we have today. It was more of a conference site and meeting room for various instruction and and people, in short, a very different kind of a temple. One of the beliefs, although again, this is not hard doctrine, but one of the beliefs is that this temple complex will indeed be built at or before the time of the second coming of Jesus. So Abraham, real life person, I believe so. I tend to believe that's a genuine story. Adam and Eve, real life people. I absolutely believe that. All the details of Genesis, real and true, I somehow believe that Eve being formed from Adam's rib is figurative. I suppose I could be persuaded otherwise, but that's definitely the way it looks to me and to many other early church leaders. But however you come down on those issues, you will not be expelled from the church these days. We have the freedom to believe what we will. Another topic that we discussed was Noah's flood. Was there really enough water that would cover all the mountains of the earth? We know that Mount Ararat was a very tall mountain. We also know that we have other mountains that are even taller. Mount Everest and K2 are among the highest, and they are incredibly high. They are approximately seven miles above sea level. How would you get enough water to cover the tops of all those mountains? And if someone says, well, these mountains pushed way, way, way up, After the time of Noah, the response to that would be, well, people can still identify Ararat. People still find the ancient city locations and villages and towns that are mentioned in Genesis. And we don't have new mountains springing up all over the place. It it doesn't seem like that kind of a thing is possible. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Religion Today with host Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio. We're back. This is Religion Today. If you have a question or comment about this or any other show, or if you have a religious question, send me an email. I will be happy to respond. Send it to Martin S. Tanner at gmail.com. That's S is in Sam, Martin S. Tanner at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to respond. No question too hard, no question too easy. Feel free to send any questions you may have. So, what if you believed that there was a worldwide flood and that all of the mountains were covered seven miles deep? There are some theoretical ideas behind that, such as the idea that the interior core of the earth is filled with water, not molten magma, as is the typical theory. Well, possibly. It would be hard to wonder what happened to the water, what kind of forces could expel them and then cause them to come back in, maybe. Um, I tend to think the flood was a localized event and that as far as Noah could see in all directions, he was seeing water. And so he said the entire earth was covered with water. Now, there are those who will say, oh, the earth was baptized, to which I would respond, that's kind of a tradition. It's certainly not doctrine. Would the earth have sinned that it needs baptism? No. Would the earth have needed baptism to join a church? I don't think so. I can't think of a valid reason why the earth itself would need to be baptized. And yet that is a tradition that persists within the LDS faith. If someone would like to believe that, I am totally fine with that. And if someone chooses not to believe that, that is absolutely with wonderful with me as, as well. And I would hope vice versa. Let's move on to some of the other issues, though, from Genesis and about how literal or figurative it is. What about the Tower of Babel? Well, it turns out that that story, which in some ways sounds really difficult to believe literally, is definitely based on historical events. There is what is widely considered to be the ruins of the Tower of Babel, about 50 miles uh, almost due north from Baghdad, Iraq, a tower called Etamenanki. It was a tower that was built to be reaching and touching the heavens for its day. It would have been incredibly tall. It would have been approximately as high as a 40-story building, depending on who makes the estimates and how they do it. But we have some ancient coins and artifacts that depict it, and it was quite remarkable. It was very re- remarkable. And it's something that still has the base left, but the rest of it has has been destroyed. Now, from, from there and the tie-in between that tower and its idea of reaching the heavens as part of the Babylonian Empire and the scattering of tongues, that's a, a tie-in that archaeology itself can't make, but the Tower of Babel itself seems to have been a genuine event. 
One of the other fascinating discussions that we had on this Facebook page was the age of the Earth. There are people who believe the age of the Earth is 7,000 years, and that is it. You have a couple thousand years after the time of Christ. You have 4,000 years prior to the time of, of Christ, approximately, till you get to Adam and Eve, which is an interesting idea. If Jesus was born in the meridian of time and you had 4,000 years beforehand, you have 4,000 years after, well, that means we have another couple thousand years to go till the second coming happens. But that's not the way uh, pe- people see that. People within the LDS faith and in other branches of Christianity believe that Jesus will be coming back very, very soon. One of the problems with the book of Genesis is trying to calculate timelines. It's nearly impossible to do that. There are gaps. And so you have, according to Jewish tradition, Adam and Eve being created in, look at the precision here, 3,924 B.C. You have Enoch being born at about 3,402 B.C., and he, along with his city, being translated in 3037 B.C. The Great Flood of Noah, 2368 B.C. Tower of Babel, not long, um, different in time, 2245 B.C., so just a little more than 100 years after the Great Flood. How do things like that work? How, how could somebody build such a spectacular tower in less than 100 years and then have the scattering, I guess that's all That's all possible. Father Abraham, born about 1900 B.C., and from there, uh, Moses, about 1556 B.C., the Exodus, 1400 B.C., David, King David, born about 1071 B.C., and Solomon's Temple built in about 997 B.C. Those are the traditional Jewish dates for these events. Are those real? I would be shocked if they're all correct, but they're reasonable estimates. Some of them, the farther back you go, how could you possibly, possibly know? The other events of the Old Testament that are just fascinating are things like the sacrifice of Isaac, which some have claimed is allegorical, and yet... We know where that event is supposed to have taken place. It's now under what is the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And according to the tradition of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, we all know where the sacrifice of of Isaac took place. You get to other events in the Old Testament, such as Noah and the parting of the Red Sea, There's even disagreement about whether it's the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and that discussion continues. There are arguments and discussions about whether or not the Exodus as a genuine event took place. I certainly believe it did, and we now have some archaeological stella which describe that event, although that still leaves the numbers of people and uh, how accurate the numbers portrayed in the Bible are up, up for discussion. So 
if you look at all of these major items, all these major events in, in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, Genesis, you will find that we really don't have actual historical evidence for Adam and Eve, but by tradition, we believe them to be true. Enoch, we don't have actual archaeological information about him, but we believe that he was a real person, as was Noah. Then we get to the point of the Tower of Babel, and there we have actual archaeological information. So starting at about 2500 BC, we have good archaeology to help us prove or demonstrate at least some of the broad brushes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, Joseph, Moses, the Exodus, David, Solomon, all of those events are things that we can now at least have some supporting information for outside of the Bible. And the trend, fascinatingly enough, is towards archaeology supporting things that had previously been believed to not be historical. And that is a fascinating trend for me. That's wonderful to see because it shows that the Bible as literal history is something that, um, if not true in every single aspect, at least is true in most of the major aspects. I absolutely believe that, notwithstanding the fact that there are certainly errors in the Bible in translation and transmission, that the major themes and ideas in the Bible and the major people within the Old Testament are genuine and true. I hope you've enjoyed this Religion Today segment. Join me again next week or on podcasts. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.